Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas, my show that tries to bring a uniquely rational perspective to some of today's most controversial issues. I'm happy to say that today's guest is Victor Davis Hansen. Victor is a world-class scholar of classics and military history. He is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He has several professorial appointments at other universities, including Hillsdale College and Pepperdine. Victor is the author of hundreds of scholarly articles, books, editorials on military history, Greek agrarian history, and contemporary culture. His list of awards and accolades is far too long to put forward, but they include things like the National Humanities Medal, the Bradley Prize, and many, many more. I'm very proud to say that Victor's a good friend of mine, uh, and a colleague, of course, uh, and we have a terrific conversation about the meaning and perspective of one of the most damaging phrases that we hear today, the so-called threat to our democracy here in the United States. Thank you for joining us and stay tuned. Well, Victor, welcome. Thank you for uh, coming on today. Thank you for having me, Scott. I just want to say something in addition to your formal introductions for full disclosure to the uh, listeners. I'm proud to count Victor as a good friend of mine. And more than that, I just want to say I admire you, Victor, as one of the very few people today who has the courage to speak out against those in power in a country now where the freedom to speak is often under attack. And I think everybody knows that you are really the uh, a real spokesman for truth and uh, opinions that may or may not fit what people want to hear. So I uh, just want to thank you for that and put that on the table. Well, well thank you. And uh, I appreciate that. In your case, it was easy because your prescient warning about where we were going with the lockdown and quarantine was inherently logical. And the people who were attacking you were, <laughs> other than the letters after their name, they had no credibility. And I think subsequent events proved that to be true. Well, thanks for saying that. Now, today I'd like to uh, talk about something that is much bigger than the pandemic, really. It's a conversation that I, I think is about what I consider perhaps the most damaging, polarizing, inflammatory, accusatory phrase that is bandied about today. It's this phrase of a so-called threat to our democracy. And, uh, you know, th this is my opinion first to start the conversation is that it seems to me this is really the mantra of one political party in the United States, the Democrat Party. And it is being used in a very uh, inflammatory and destructive way to instill fear in voters about electing the opposition. That is the Republican Party. It's used to instill distrust. Uh, and in fact, it's demonizing half the population who votes Republican. Uh, and, you know, in this sense, it's sort of propaganda. I'm, I'm very concerned because, you know, that, that phrase, threat to democracy, 
is really the so-called existential threat of the country, if it's true. So what I, what I want to get out of you, Victor, who's so knowledgeable about history, uh, political history, what is uh, really this concept of a threat to democracy? What is a legitimate threat to democracy historically? And has this kind of phraseology been used in the past? Uh, it has, but it usually refers to an, an, a true insurrection, either a, a political candidate or a political force or a party that decapitates the government or has the ability or says it's going to do it. We haven't had, I mean, a threat to democracy was the Civil War or during the MacArthur period, I don't think that was a serious threat in the sense that the right that was going after communists in Hollywood were going to be successful in getting rid of the First Amendment, for example, because there were there were legitimate security issues. But in this context, it belongs to a whole vocabulary, because you, you know as well as I do that hate speech is used also by the left to attack free speech. And election denialism is used by the left to attack free and unfettered questioning of uh, sometimes dubious balloting. So the left does this. It uses these pejoratives to obfuscate what they're doing. There is a threat to democracy. And what is that threat? In my view, it's the weaponization of unelected people in the administrative state. What do I mean by that? I mean, in the election of 2016, the FBI hired a foreign national, uh, Christopher Steele, to create a false dossier, and then they seeded it among government and the media, and it was paid for in addition by Hillary Clinton through three paywall. The FBI, for example, uh, offered him a million dollars steal, and he couldn't uh, substantiate one element, and then an FBI lawyer forged a FISA document, document an affidavit. In the 2020 election, the FBI uh, had this laptop that they knew was genuine, and yet they kept mom, why Anthony Blinken, the current Secretary of State and the former interim director of the CIA, Mike Morrell, got 51 quote-unquote authorities from the investigatory and intelligence uh, bureaus to lie and say that this was a hallmark of Russian disinformation, which was used by Joe Biden to mislead the election. Or... In 2020, what everyone thinks of Donald Trump, the fact that four prosecutors may have 500 indictments. I mean, Charles Manson didn't earn 500 indictments. So it's it's a use of the levers of government to warp elections and to be exempt from the consequences of their uh, activity. We've had four subsequent FBI directors. They all have one thing in common, Robert Mueller misled the country when under oath he said he didn't know what fusion GPS or steel were. And then, of course, James Comey claimed amnesia 245 times under oath, and Andrew McCabe admittedly, by his own admission, uh, lied four times to federal investigators, and then Christopher Ray has just been stonewalling. They all have one thing in common. There were no consequences. That's a threat to democracy. Right, and I think yeah. th this is... Yeah, to me, this this is the the threat to democracy 
is when the people in power, whether elected or not, really, have no accountability, no accountability. to the people. And, and, and the, the, because to me, the, the accountability, the, the, the founding of the country uh, is based upon limitations in the, by, of the people in power. Right. I mean, this is this this part of the limitation is the accountability and accountability by election isn't enough. We need to have accountability. Uh, so how do how do we ensure accountability? I mean, one of the ways and I think these have been lost and this is where I'd like to get your thoughts on the accountability uh, from my uh, uh, lifetime has been. One, number one, uh, the investigative journalism side of things. Yes, that's the one media way. has always been a lever insisting and holding these people in power to account. That's that to me has been gone, uh, has been removed because the media is 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 a gross failure in being an objective, truth seeking body. Similarly, the the courts have been politicized. I mean. The, these, to me, are the uh, the real threats to democracy, whereas the people who keep claiming that people like Trump are threats to democracy or electing Republicans is a threat to democracy, that claim is, is simply uh, overtly self-contradictory because they're claiming that democratic outcomes are threats to democracy. Yeah. Well, there's a big asymmetry. It's not that... Republicans are inherently more noble, although I think they are. That's not the point. The point is that there's right. an adversarial media. So a, a Trump or a DeSantis understands when he says or writes something, he's going to meet a hostile media. So he's under constant audit and scrutiny. And that has an effect of deterrence. But the left-wing politician, and Obama or Biden, understands that Anything he does that's questionable, he lies, he does anything, there's going to be a media chorus that will contextualize it or excuse it or exempt it or smother it. And that leads to people on the left to be emboldened and feel that they can do things that their counterparts on the right can't because the media is enlisted and fused with them. The other thing you ask what they can do besides the media, you can enforce the law. So in all those cases that I mentioned of FBI directors, and we could add James Clapper, who lied under oath, admittedly, as director of national intelligence, or John Brennan, who did it twice. Had they faced perjury charges? In other words, when John Brennan said, we, I've never, the CIA has never spied on Senate staff computers under oath. And then two weeks later, he said, well, they did, actually. If somebody had said, we're bringing you up on perjury charge, it would just be one felony conviction of somebody of that stature would encourage the others not to do it. In your case, if you remember Anthony Fauci, from what we can tell, even with the redacted emails, he got before Rand Paul, and he essentially said that this manufactured or enhanced virus was not gain-of-function research. It was absurd. And his, his emails that were released show that not only did he not believe that, but he was scurrying around and trying to get a cadre of sympathetic researchers to sort of warp what they knew would, was not true to give the impression that if Anthony Fauci had routed money to the Wuhan lab via Echo Health, it either had no 
consequence because it was a, quote, pangolin uh, origin or a bat, and therefore it was irrelevant, or if it did come from the Wuhan lab, it wasn't gain of function that he had been funding. Right. And, and yet he lied. And, right. And, 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 I, he, and, I, and I'll add. There's no consequences Let me just to add it. something exactly yeah. to, to what you're saying, which is uh, the GAO report of June 2023 showed that the NIH and Fauci funded $2 million plus directly and indirectly to the Wuhan lab. Yes. to do coronavirus research. So pointing out exactly, you're exactly correct. And secondly, uh, that Fauci's FOIA, FOIA emails that have been exposed have shown that he knew it was gain-of-function research being, uh, being uh, under, undergoing uh, in the Wuhan lab. And it's not just that there were sympathetic scientists. These were scientists that were career dependent on NIH funding. Yes. And this is one, one of the real issues here, is that people have uh, fear for their own careers. This is the leveraging of power by those uh, who control the money uh, and no, therefore the academic career. So yeah. Yeah, it's a very complex web. Yeah, yeah. There's no oversight. Have you seen, have you seen this? Yeah, have you seen this sort of... Uh, you know, we talk about the lack of accountability, but in terms of the enforcement of law, I mean, what is the point of having congressional subpoena power if no one has to answer to the subpoena? What is the point of taking congressional testimony under oath if people overtly lie under oath? I just wonder, have, has, is this a new phenomenon or have we just simply not been aware that everyone has been lying over the years? Well, I think people in the past were, I mean, a Congress represent, congressional representative or senator can have a criminal referral. So if somebody comes up to them and they lie clearly under oath, then they contact the Department of Justice and said, this person has broken the law. But if the DOJ is weaponized, so Rand Paul, for example, says that when Congress reconvenes, he's going to have Fauci come back in and he'll be under oath, and he's going to ask him again, and he's going to send a criminal referral to the DOJ. But he understands that Merrick Garland's not going to do anything because Fauci is considered an ally. And so there's, there will be no consequences. The problem with what we're talking about is there are consequences if you or I lie to an IRS investigator or somebody subpoenas us in a civil trial and we lie and people get charged all the time with lying under oath or with affidavits. And so when you when you have that asymmetry, it sends this message that certain people are completely exempt because of their power, their influence, their reputation, their degrees, and we don't even need to get into the whole Biden family. And that undermines the high, entire system of jurisprudence. So that is a threat to democracy. And I think that's the biggest one. Politicized prosecutors, uh, politicized judges, and a politicized DOJ and the investigatory agencies under its umbrella like the FBI. Do you think that we are entering a phase where uh, we we are now going to have a series of impeachments of of using political proceedings 
no matter who's in, in, in office. And, and here what I'm saying is not so much uh, that, it, that people should be excused at all, but we seem to have impeachable or impeachment, impeachable offenses or the threat of impeachment or even true impeachment uh, far more frequently than ever imagined. Yeah, I think we are. Um, if you read The Federalists, they wrote three or four papers about the difference between the American system and the parliamentary governments that were emerging in Europe. And their point was this. They did not want, they understood that a president would still be a president even though he lost a majority in Congress, whereas in Europe he would be out because he had no more parliamentary majority. But they said if he lost, if he came into power and he had the majority in the House and he lost that majority, then they were afraid that the House would act as if they were a parliament and vote no confidence via impeachment. And they had a big fight about it, whether it should have to have three-fourths, two-thirds, or a majority. And that I think the inadequate uh, re reconciliation of the different views was, okay, the House can impeach anybody at any time, and he, they will have a tendency to check a president of the opposite party, but he has to be tried in the Senate, and he, he, there'll be a required two-thirds vote to be convicted. And that very th threat that you would not likely ever convict anybody, Andrew Johnson escaped, he was the closest by one vote. He was the only person we've ever had get close in the Senate. But with Richard Nixon, they told him they were going to impeach him in the House, and they had the vote, so he resigned. Bill Clinton, they did impeach him, but it was clear that when they impeached him, they would never they would never, ever convict him in the Senate. They was clear with Donald Trump that both impeachments would never convict him. So both Republicans and Democrats were doing what the founders feared. They were trying to use impeachment for a political process to show no confidence in the president. And I think that's going to be regular. I think right now, and because of what the Democrats did, they had no special counsel. They had no special counsel's report. I think I don't know if the Republicans, they're in a quandary whether you reply tit for tat to end it and say, you did this, we're going to have to go back and reply in like kind and then we'll stop. Or they're going to play by the Marcus of Queensbury rules and say, we're not going to stoop to what you do and that's going to empower them to do it again. So it's a hard question. But I think from now on, if a president loses the majority in the House in his first term, we're going to see in more and more impeachment just what the founders were afraid of. And it will I don't think we'll see convictions, but it will hurt a president to say, I've been impeached, unless he's like Donald Trump, and he could care less if they impeached him twice. Right. I mean, in fact, the power of the impeachment, by virtue of being done multiple times in a row, uh, seems to diminish, which... Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure how to what to make of that. I mean, the, the the reality is that we have become, you know, we talk about a loss of civil civil discourse in the country. This was really shown, I think, in our politicians and our elected political leaders. We've had several uh, presidents in a row 
who don't seem to understand that once they're elected, they're actually elected to represent everybody, including those who didn't vote for them. But we also have seen things like the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, tear up the State of the Union address on TV. I mean, this was unheard of uh, when we were younger. Uh, the dignity of our of our elected leaders is really uh, gone. It's to me, it's a it's a huge embarrassment uh, for our country to have that sort of thing happen. You know, I, I like to talk about the constitutional separation of power. That's the real check and balance in our system, uh, whether it's through impeachment or not. Uh, we seem to have a a real. A, a dramatic increase in the use of executive authority and the centralization of power by the executive branch, the president and the administration, far beyond what was intended. Uh, what, what, what do you think of that and what, 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 how, how rapidly has that changed? Well, it started after World War II when we kind of had a permanent strategic defense industrial complex and presidents began to declare war without declaring war. I mean, they went into Korea or Vietnam and they never declared war. And they started to legislate. And now you can see it with Joe Biden. I mean, he has no authority to cancel $1.7 trillion in student debt. And yet he tried to get that through. He had the idea that a single president right before a midterm can drain 30% of the strategic petroleum reserve to lower the price of gas. It shouldn't have ever happened. That was that's something that should have to have a bill to go to Congress to see if he has that authority. So we've given them an enormous amount of authority. And again, all of this was outlined in the uh, Constitution. And they started with the idea that human nature is constant and we were going to get some bad people. And how they didn't start with the idea we're all going to be like Washington. We're going to get people who are scoundrels. So let's design a system where the scoundrel cannot destroy the country. And that's what they did with these checks and balances. But they were very brilliant people. They were very worried. They had a big fight. I think it would have been much better just to, to go back to impeachment to say you have to have two-thirds. Because they said, if you read the Federalist Papers, there will not be an impeachment in the House by representatives of the same party as the president. And that's exactly what's happened. Clinton was re uh, impeached by Republicans. Trump was re impeached by Democrats. And Nixon would have been impeached by Democrats. So they understood what, what was it about. And I think they had no idea. They, they thought they had checked the president uh, with the House cutting off funds. Like right now they're discussing, well, we're going to cut off funds to the Biden administration because they haven't enforced the border. Or... Any, any city that's a sanctuary city, we can cut off traffic, uh, highway funds. But they don't really have much power unless, the only time that you really have a balance of power under our system is when you have a president of one party and you have a veto-proof Congress, and then you do have equal power, and that's very rare. Right. Obama, Obama had it for two years, and Trump had it for two years. And they were able, neither one of them was able to use the power that they had for a variety of reasons. But otherwise... So how do we reel back, you know, how, how do, do we reel back the power? Uh, you know, in my, my way of thinking, I'm shocked at how presidents can, can get 
dramatic policies put in place simply by decree, uh, whether it's stopping drilling for oil or, uh, you know, all, all kinds of things beyond declaration of war. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Uh, that can be uh, sort of circumvented. When you I say mean, that, how do you how do you stop that? Well, I think you have to identify the problem. There's three branches of government, and which ones have become more powerful than the founders envisioned, and which had been have become less powerful. And it's pretty clear that the Supreme Court is much more powerful than they ever thought. They never thought that this Supreme Court would be legislating and creating laws, which they have, especially under the Warren Court. And they never thought the president would have this power. And where did that power came, come from? It came from the legislative branch. It came from Congress's systematically lost power. And I don't know whether that's because uh, the country is now 330 million people, and, the con and we haven't really changed the size of the House, I think, since 1913. Or that's the two senators they the left says that you know they in California senators worth two million twenty million people and Wyoming is worth two hundred thousand. I don't know what whether the system is not flexible, but it's clearly identifiable that the Congress is not functioning the way that the founders intended. It's not checking the president or doesn't have the power, and it's being checked by the court, and it doesn't. It doesn't override a court decision very frequently. It has that power in theory, and they don't cut off on. They can shut down the government, but every time they do, they lose the the war for public opinion. So until the Congress becomes more powerful, I don't. I think the legis the the executive and the judicial branch will continue to do things that they were not intended to do, and that's scary because they're and not. And speaking of the. Yeah, they're not elected. I mean, the Go president ahead. is elected, but most of the people who are doing these things are within cabinets or they're in permanent bureaucracies, and they're not elected, and the Supreme right. Court is not elected. So it's the only I mean, people one thing that I think is has a role here is really term limits. We have to eliminate this entrenched bureaucratic uh, power of unelected people. And I think one way is to have term limits on those positions, administrative positions, not just heads, but a, even mid-level positions. But that that's just a, that's a, that's only a small part of the puzzle. I, yeah. I don't think there's a silver bullet here. I, you know, uh, I wonder about this. Go ahead. I, well, in The Dying Citizen, I thought about that, the book I wrote about the diminution and, and the idea of citizenship. And there are things we could do. We could, I, I mentioned we could enforce the perjury laws. And term limits are right. You wouldn't have a Mitch McConnell, a Fet Senator Fetterman, uh, a Nancy Pelosi, a Dianne Feinstein cognitively challenged, for example, if there were term limits. And we wouldn't have these enclaves of these iconic 40-year senators that can do things that, you know, that they're almost like a kingdom unto themselves. That would help, term limits, absolutely. But in addition to that, uh, my biggest recommendation, I thought the most important was you have to decent, they never, when they created this country, it was this thin strip from Boston down to the Carolinas. And they put Washington kind of in the middle of it. And they created a new city because they said, you know, we're not gonna favor one territory, it's gonna be centrally located. 
will start it. Well, now that idea is asymmetrical. It's all there and everybody's concentrated on it. If they would break up those agencies you talked about, put the FBI headquarters in Kansas City, the Department of Agriculture in Fresno, the Department of the Interior in Casper, Wyoming, and break it all up, then I don't think you'd have these incestuous relationships where Ben Rhodes is the Deputy National Security Advisor to Obama and his brother is the head of CBS News and he's married to this person and he's... They're all married, they're intertwined, they see each other at cocktail parties, they're all in Washington, or they have connections with New York finance and media. And it's just ingrained and incestuous, and it has to be broken up. I would break up the FBI. I would say, you know what? They've had their chance. Take the investigatory, put it under DOJ, take some under Treasury, take some under Department of Interior, take up the bureaus and break them up, because that director... Is, a, is become very scary, the amount of power that he will. He can change the elections. He can, he can suppress evidence. He can, they can forge documents. They can hire Twitter to suppress the news. So geographically, we need to break up the centers of power, and then we have to have some kind of term limits. I think that's a good idea as far as these directorships of these CIA um, FBI, IRS, etc. What about even, uh, you know, part of this so-called threat to democracy and the lack of accountability to the people is the simply the power of the government, uh, partly because of its centralization, but also partly because of its its massive control of 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 funding of money of uh, for projects many of which don't have results. There's no accountability to the results of the spending. Uh, you know, this is partly the, the reason why people have called for elimination of the whole departments. Yet we've never seen that. You know, we, you know I, I think we heard in, in the current campaign, uh, people question the Department of Education, and yet then uh, when they're in charge, they still appoint a secretary of the Department of Education. They don't follow through. These are all simply meaningless promises. Do you think we'll ever see a, retrench a retrenchment, a, a decrease in the growth, uh, meaning a real cut in the administrative control of this country? Or is that just simply fantasy? I, I think that there are so many people in Washington where all of these cabinetsies are that when anybody tries to suggest we should cut them, somebody says, well, wait a minute, my spouse is a deputy secretary of education or they hire all these people in here and, and this person and that person. So you're going to have to break them up so they don't have that concentration of power. That's very important, I, I think, to, to, to break up that nexus. And then the other, the other thing is, um, if you were, the states all have to balance their budgets, and the federal government's $31 trillion in debt. But if you pass some type of law that said they had to be within 1% or 2% during peacetime, they couldn't run up these deficits to the degree they did. There would be fiscal sobriety. And that's usually the answer to most problems. If you take the university... They've hired tens of thousands of diversity, equity, and inclusion commissar. But all you'd have to do is say, we're going to tax your endowment, and 
we're going to get out of the student loan business and you can use your taxed endowment to guarantee your own loans. And I guarantee you, students would start graduating in four years. They would have a lot fewer majors. The universities would be paranoid that if they had a ethnic studies major, uh, that person would not be able to pay them back because they would be unemployable. So the way to go at it is to look at the funding. And if we were to balance budgets and have consequences, then I think people would be very careful not to, ex to expand. It would be a, a pie would be finite. But today, right. every, it's just to always borrow more money and create bigger, bigger empires, bigger administrations. We have a model, and it's, it's hard pretty, to. In it's hard. Yeah, we have this one percent that went to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Berkeley, Duke, you name it, and they they go into New York, Washington, Nexus, and they marry each other. Their brothers are there. Their cousins, their friends at from prep school or and they create this mafia and it's very hard to get talented people outside of it and they're very protective of the idea of, you know that they're professionals sure. and they're in, they're in government I mean, some of these people look at joe biden which, the guy has which, never never been outside of government his whole life and, or obama yeah I, and i think we've seen this you know and i'm not from that background myself so i'm very attuned to uh that uh personally but we you know we the question is what will it take of course in theory yes you go after the money you, you require accountability but the people in the positions to implement those changes are busy protecting their own power and so i'm very skeptical that that will get done and if it doesn't get done uh i mean is there really a potential for a real revolution here? Is there a potential for things that might have seemed crazy to talk about a decade ago, like separation of the country? I mean, we've seen a migratory change internally during COVID for freedom and uh, to some extent for other policies. Uh, and you have to wonder, are we, are we going so extreme and are we entering a phase where this population, the American population, is so divided, so polarized, that there is no real turning back to that? Uh, you know, I, I wonder about that sometimes. Yeah. Well, you got to remember, it's not just two equal sides. They're very different. And that's what's scary about it. There's two things that make it scary. The one is that on every popular issue that we look at today that's being implemented, an open border, a decriminalization of violent crime, uh, the green agenda that restricts the use of natural gas and oil, uh, the vast spending, the American people do not support any of it. So why, if they are in the majority, why are these things taking place? And the answer is they don't get the truth from a biased media. It's controlled by the left. The foundations are controlled by the left. The popular culture, professional sports, K through 12, academia, the corporate boardroom, all of our major uh, Silicon Valley, the order that we search in Google, Twitter and the epic, 
all of our major forms of influence and communications are all run by the left, and then you have this majority who's very frustrated and say, but nobody in the country wants biological males with male genitalia on dressing in front of women. Why does that continue? Or they will say, nobody in the country wants uh, partial birth abortion, just to take a, another hot button issue. Why is that okay? And the answer is that the elite control the method, methodologies of influence and communication. That's one. The second thing that's really scary, so that's, that, that's unsustainable. You can't have the majority of people angry all the time, that no matter how they vote or no matter what they think or how, no matter how they poll, they're never going to close that border because the media will demonize them as nativist, racist, or the courts will do this, or New York Times op-ed will make, and they can't close the border. Everybody wants it closed, nobody will do it. And then you mentioned the geography is very important because that's caused the Civil War. In the 60s, we had political differences, but they were by and large not so geographical, and you couldn't move so easily. There wasn't Zoom, or you weren't distance learning, or, but now, we're back to the 1850s because we had 600,000 people leave California in just two, a, a year and a half. And we're starting to see red, 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 red states and then blue, 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 blue states. And the rural areas in the red states are booming and the big cities are dying, but you're, you're getting people geographically distinct. So a guy that's... Right in rural Texas has nothing in common anymore with somebody in Minneapolis or San Francisco who stays. And the people who are sick of those blue states understand that the media or Silicon Valley or popular culture has basically delegitimized them. So they don't want to stay and fight in California. They just leave. And when they leave, contrary to what we fear, they don't bring their crazy left-wing ideas, because they're mostly far right, but they enhance or amplify the red state credo. So we're getting a pretty a conservative half the country, it's getting more conservative, and then a left-wing country that's getting more left-wing. And they're completely different, because it's not just politically, but one is urban, and we requires big government and entitlements, and it's where the universities are and the banks, and the other is got a whole different paradigm. So I'm kind of worried because right, and I, and I agree here. I, I think the key the key here to my uh, anxiety over it is I, I think it is unsustainable. Uh, I don't see a country having uh, what's needed to sustain itself particularly in times of stress. I mean, I wonder if we have a war, is there enough patriotism in the United States to win the war? I, I just don't know. I, I, I think it's dangerous and even frightening to think that there's a question about that. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's sustainable to have a country where a significant percentage of people hate the country, Yeah. Well, particularly the in leadership. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I think what's saving us right now are two things. One is that these differences still have not completely bifurcated. So you have a family and I have a family. And I know that in my family, the majority of them are left-wing. Maybe you have left-wing relatives. 
everybody, our left-wing families have right-wing. And we haven't reached the point, although we're getting close, that it's civil war brother against brother. So it's still internalized to some degree. And the second thing is the left is trying to weaponize the country by race. And they're, they and that started under Obama when he substituted class oppression and he put in race. And he said that, you know, the problem with class is that people are upwardly mobile, so we, we lose our constituency when they do well. But with race, it's immutable, it's permanent. So Oprah's a victim, Meghan Markle's a victim, LeBron is a victim because they're black. Well, the problem they're having is that's saving us that we're starting to see for the first time 30, 40, 50% of some Hispanic groups are voting non-democratic and it's growing. And so that's encouraging because the, the left wants to divide us by culture, by education, and especially by race. And I don't know if they're going to be successful in that, especially if you start to see the black vote get up to 20% conservative because they rely on it so heavily and they've lost the white working class. But that is hopeful if we can get, say, in California, if you had 50% of the majority minority, which is 45% Hispanic, voting opposite to their traditional democratic uh, allegiances, it would be very healthy. And that's, I think, the only thing that's going to that's going to save us. That there's going to be a fragmentation among the left. The left is it's not democratic; it's Jacobin. So when you see, you know, Bill Maher or Matt Taibbi or Elon Musk, these people just five years ago, if we went back and looked at what they were writing, they were pretty hard left, and they're basically telling us we created this Frankensteinian monster, and it's devouring us and we got to get out. We got to leave the state or we got to stop it because we never thought that if you were a white liberal in Hollywood, there'd be a quota against in the Oscar awards or the Emmy awards. Or if I'm a multimillionaire in Silicon Valley and my kid went to Sacred Heart and I, I did, how can he not get into Stanford? This shouldn't apply to me, but it does apply to them. And they're starting to see that this thing is a nihilistic, destructive movement. So whether yes. they'll realize that in time and vote them out, I don't know. Or they, whether they can if they operate, the, as we said earlier, the, the levers of influence and validating and everything. Right, but it takes quite a, quite an, it takes both time as well as very, very extreme pendulum swing to provoke a return towards center. Uh, and I'm... Uh, I'm a little bit concerned that it's going to take uh, a lot longer and even more extreme policies before we see it. I guess we'll see in the upcoming election, although that's a way off. But it's, it's you know, one of the things that frightens me about even the accountability via, via election uh, is that there seems to be a tendency to vote on one issue. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but seems like one hot button issue will make a lot of people vote a certain way and therefore disregard all the other issues. And one example to me that comes to mind is the abortion issue. And okay, I'm not minimizing its importance to people and people can deem whatever issue is the most important issue to them. But uh, when people disregard all the other 
policies, all the other record of accomplishment or failure for one issue, uh, then you sort of uh, have changed the whole the whole uh, sort of rational way to vote, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's true, and uh, it and when we look at these issues that are tearing us apart, that uh, we we have to remember one thing, and that is what can't go on won't go on. So I was in San Francisco recently. If you came from Mars and you were there in 2000 or 2004 and you were there today, it's unrecognizable. And there were cars with placards in them, nothing inside, with the windows down. So they understood that you're a liberal San Franciscan and if you park your car near Union Square, it's going to be broken into and the police will not come. So you leave the windows down, you leave a placard. There is a excrement all along the sidewalk. When you fly into SFO, you can see where the storm drains and you can see the, the dregs or the affluent come right out into the bay. This is in the greenest city, supposedly. So you're not safe. It's highly taxed. The school districts, they've destroyed Lowell High School. And the people who voted this in and marginalized, so-called marginalized com communities and white liberals, the marginalized communities say, you know what, I, my uncle owns a store and they just walk in and steal. Or the affluent people said, you know, I have to go down at eight at night uh, to get some Advil at Walgreens, but it's locked up or it's shut down or my whole foods is shut down. So it's not working anymore. And the question is, will they rise up, the people who create it? You need that, you need that majority. They have to join conservatives. And will they say, we, we did this? History says that, that that's not necessarily true, that sometimes they, in, in the case of Rome or Byzantium, they, they, they came to that awareness too, too late. And it's just that we're in right. a race Countries for time. Countries do fall. Civiliza they, they Civilizations do, do fall. Always, and it's always and, uh, from from within. It's never from without. Anytime it, it seems like it's with, from without, it's because there was an internal weakness or decay or decline that allowed it to be vulnerable. So my biggest worry is that the left that created this problem by defunding the police or destroying the criminal code or destroying entrepreneurism and fossil fuel use or opening the border, that uh, it will come too late to the recognition that it's not immune from the consequences of its own ideology. You can live in Malibu, you can live in, you know, Ross, or you can live in Marin County, and you're still going to have to deal with homelessness and crime. It's, it'll reach you, and your kid, it'll reach your kids, and you got to stop it. And whether they can realize that in time before these places, in the case of San Francisco, they didn't. It's unlivable. And I, they're, they're canceling, almost all these tourist, uh, tour bureaus are canceling all of their conventions to go there. And I, I, I've been invited two or three times the last three years to go speak there, and then they'll, I'll get a, a notice and say, we canceled our convention because the people will not. Yeah, I mean, it. this is the worry of, of our other of peer nations and uh, places that I travel in Western Europe who are watching the United States uh, and have modeled many things and view the United States as the beacon of freedom and opportunity for 
for the world, really. And now what's happening in the U.S. is frightening people in these in these Western European countries. Yeah. And the constant refrain that I hear is, we don't want that here. No. We don't want, don't. we, the Europeans, we don't want what's going on in the U.S. to come here. And they know from past experience that much of what happens here, particularly in California, eventually makes its way into their countries and into their culture. Uh, no, that's, so, that's absolutely yeah, true. It's, uh, we hate to be so negative, but it's, it's, very, it's very frightening, I think. And there's a reality here that you can't ignore. Uh, and I think you and I are both very much uh, reality-based people about what's going on. And the only way to stop it is to make sure that people understand the reality because the real threat to democracy is the chaos and the lack of accountability for the people in power in the United States right now. And somehow that has to be restored and it has to come from within. Just like you yeah. said, the decay yeah. comes from within. The solutions have to come from within. Yeah, I agree. And I, I had a student I was talking to not too long on the Stanford campus. And I said, would you go watch Alfred Hitchcock's 1955 Vertigo? And they have live shots of San Francisco. And you will find that the streets are immaculate and it's not staged for Hollywood. These were, you know, in ac action photos and the people are well-dressed and they're polite. And there were a lot of problems with that society, but they did not allow people to defecate, urinate, fornicate, and inject on the street. And it, it shows. And so we've gone backwards. And, you know, St. Jerome wrote a really famous letter in the fourth century talking about Cicero's form being overgrown with weeds and dirty, and the whole Rome was shot. So that it happens, and you have to, you have to be aware in your time and space that it's happening. A lot of people, and this young person had never seen San Francisco like that. He didn't even think that, he thought this was the new normal. And I was trying to tell him that that was a beautiful city that people used to wear a coat. They would get dressed up to go to San Francisco. They would park their car anywhere. It was absolutely safe. They'd go to dinner late at night. Women could walk alone and they've destroyed that city. And he, and you wouldn't know they've destroyed it unless you've seen what it used to be like. And so we, it takes a lot of education. The other thing, real quickly, I was just in Europe talking to some, in Turkey and Greece and Cyprus and Israel, and I was talking to some Greek people, and they're astounded because uh, we advertised ourselves as a multiracial democracy. We were the only ones that could do it. Brazil didn't do it very well. India didn't do it very well. We did it. And they emulated that with their immigration policy, especially Greece. They brought in a lot of people from North Africa, the Arab world, you know, Sweden, 20% of Sweden, Swedes were not born in the country now. And they're having enormous crime problems. And this person I was talking to was blaming us. And he said, we emulated your immigration. We entered, entered, we wanted to be a multiracial. You told Obama, youth, and at the core of this experiment, you failed. Because when we look at crime in America, it's inordinately people of particular races and who I guess would be called marginalized or victims, but nevertheless, whatever the rubric or whatever the cause is, your racial formula no longer works and we don't want any part of it. And that's what you see in Europe now. That right-wing reaction is very different than ours. 
it is a kind of racialized, we're going to be Europeans, we're not going to let in anymore. It's kind of a nativist xenophobic, and it's a reaction to what we are, and they used to want to emulate us, and now they think after George Floyd or after the decriminalization or BLM and whatever it is, they think we've utterly failed, and France thinks that. They don't want to be like France. The, Pol- the Poles, the Czechs, the Hungarians, the Romanians say, you know what, we're not going to be like Western Europe, and Western Europe says we're not going to be like the United States. I think that's really important because we pride ourselves in our hubris that we solved the racial problem, and we had this historic problem. We're a multi-diverse country. Diversity is our strength. The world doesn't agree with it. They think you guys failed. You have separate racial graduations. You have separate spaces. You have separate dorms. People are more polarized by race than they ever have been before. I think that's something that we don't talk about but it's central to the border, it's central to crime, it's central to all these issues, and we're, and we're just terrified of talking about it. But the Europeans aren't, and other people aren't. And, and, they're, and to- they're, they're reacting in a way that is, uh, that is uh, sort of understandable, but it, it's, it's very interesting to me. I'm from a family of immigrants, and um, my, my grandparents were not born here. And when people in my grandparents' generation came in the early 1900s and the country was, the strength of the country is from immigrants, et cetera, and we all know that's true, but that was in an era when people that came to the United States came to the United States because they wanted to be Americans. And what we see today, I think, is very different. It's not the immigrants who come and don't want to be Americans, but we have people who are who have benefited from the system here, from originally immigrant families, it seems that a lot of them are the source of trying to criticize America and represent themselves as victims. So we have an anti-Americanism. Yeah. That is, the, the anti-Americanism in the world is mainly from inside America. I think this is one of the great ironies in the, in the, in the great uh, problems of the country and maybe I'm wrong. I live in California. It's uh, many would say it's an extremist state, but I I can't help but be dismayed at what I feel is a tremendous amount of hostility to the United States from Americans, whereas most people in the world uh, I I think would disagree with that hostility. But we'll yeah. you know we'll have to we'll have to move on, Victor, and leave it because I don't want to take up all of your time on this visit. But uh, we, I, w- I would love to come have you come back and talk about uh, not just the threat to democracy, but really patriotism and what that means, yeah. and uh, how do we restore patriotism, which I think is a is a critical ingredient because you can't have a sustainable country if you don't love the country. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we'll have to have you back. I, I want to thank you again, Victor, for uh, being so generous with your time. Uh, your you're in demand. You're a truth teller, and uh, it's it's always a pleasure learning from uh, from you. Thank you for having me, Scott. Okay, see you soon. Thank you for listening to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to find out more about today's guest, Victor Davis Hansen, check out his website, victorhansen.com, where you'll see his latest writings, his books, as well as his very uh, interesting podcast. And don't forget, subscribe to this show on YouTube, as well as Spotify, Apple, Google, and anywhere else 
You're listening to the podcast right now, and I'll see you next time.